Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. And I'm Charlotte Bond. Most Christmas stories involve fantasy of some kind, be it a more speculative fiction element or a saccharine and unrealistic fantasy of a perfect life or romance. <clears throat> and I you have to admit that I, I'm a real sucker for uh, particularly the last one. I mean, you know, <laughs> they, they just did uh, A Christmas Prince Part 2, The Royal Wedding. And yes, I have watched it already. I mean, guilty as charged. Anyway... <laughs> <laughs> You're speaking to the girl who always gets a Mills and Boone Christmas romance novel every year, just for a little bit of fun. Ah, yes, love it. <laughs> so Christmas as a season often has a feel-good family connotation, with many stories involving a kind of wish-fulfillment fantasy element. They give us hope, but hope is something we find when we kind of we have obstacles to overcome, and such obstacles aren't always light-hearted. So yeah, many of these obstacles play out with supernatural or speculative elements. So, you know, everyone knows Dickens' A Christmas Carol, which features, you know, ghosts. And one of my favourite Christmas films of all time, which my mother constantly teases me about for liking because, you know, she's like, uh, it's a bit lame, isn't it? You know? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, okay. But uh, It's a Wonderful Life. I've never seen it. You've <clears throat> never seen it? No. <laughs> oh, I love it so much. It's, I mean, it's, it's really soppy. It's just, it's, it's so, so soppy, but I love it. Um, but yeah, in It's a Wonderful Life, you know, they ask basically, you know, what if George Bailey were never born? And then, you know, they, they play out that kind of scenario. So it's very speculative in that, um, way. And then, you know, you've got Netflix's many trashy and yet oh so addictive holiday specials. So something like the holiday calendar, which centers on the magical object, the calendar. So yeah, there's a lot of these kind of Christmas stories, which are, you know, both dark and very lighthearted that, you know, all have this kind of fantastical element. Um, so, I mean, what, what kind of, you know, are the, the most common speculative fiction elements you've seen in, in Christmas stories, Charlotte? Well, I think the one that comes up again and again is um, divine judgment. Um, and I was reading through a couple of uh, articles online about M.R. James and just Christmas in general. And one um, one also made the point that in December or coming up to January as well, you kind of think back on the year that's gone and plan what you're going to do with the year ahead. So you kind of assess your own life and you judge yourself. And it's only a short step from doing that to then thinking of, what's going to happen, you know, in the afterlife or to having that judge be Saint Saint Nicholas or an angel or whatever. Um, so I think you tend to see a lot of that. Um, it's a lot about balance. Um, I'd also say sort of like the lack of greed and thinking of others. And when I was thinking about why this might be, um, I think part of it now is just because Christmas is so commercial. You have to emphasize it's not all about the presents. It's not all about getting everything you want, or at least you do if you're a parent of a six year old. Um, but I was uh, also. Uh, I'm an only child. I mean, sure. I get everything I want, <laughs> obviously. Uh, and if my parents are listening, uh, I hope everything on my list is going to make it to my tree this year. Yep. <gasps> yep. <laughs> Naughty elf. <laughs> no? Is that not how it works? Come on. <laughs> But I mean, these days, it's stuff that we want rather than stuff that we need. And I think Mm. previously, if you think well well back to it, um, winter was a time 
when it was really harsh, there was, you know, very little food around and you were kind of starting out your stores and you're having to ration everything. And it was important to be kind and helpful and very gregarious because you couldn't really survive on your own. You kind of all get together and share a big goose. And if you if you had a big slab of meat like that and you were just one family, it would all go to waste. Whereas if you, you know, sort of share it around, then it, it sort of feeds a, a load of you and it's just it's more economical so it's kind of like social gatherings for the purpose of survival and things like that and I think that all kind of gets melded in this whole idea of it's it's pretty much life and death when it comes to winter and snow um, and it's also you know the idea of looking backwards looking forwards and because I think you're so close to death and the idea of divine judgment as well this is kind of all got thrown into the mix and then all this jollity is kind of being put on top of it and you've never really lost the darker elements but you've just added more and more um tinsel to the top of it <laughs> yeah i mean i mean even the terribly soppy romantic christmas films which are just i mean they're so bad i i love them all though so you know what what have i got this year the um so we've got the christmas prince and the the Christmas Prince 2. Um, then we have things like, oh, what, which was it last year? Um, A Christmas Inheritance. Yep, that one was terrible, but I may have seen it more than three times. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've got uh, A Princess Switch this year as well with Vanessa Hudgens. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it just goes on and on. But I feel like even those, you know, they're all kind of romance stories where it's often the the kind of the leads of like given up on love or you know they've kind of resigned themselves to kind of a, a sad kind of state of affairs which kind of feeds back to your your point about you know kind of reflecting on the year that's passed reflecting on what you haven't managed to do and also you know the the whole surviving the cold winter you have that kind of thing okay well we've survived we have something to look forward to we're going on and to to reflect and and move on and even those silly soppy ridiculous romantic christmas films are kind of like that they're they're showing they're giving someone hope they're saying okay well you you've been sad but you've still got a future and we're looking ahead now well, I think another element of romance at Christmas is coming back to the whole idea of social gatherings. Now, as an inveterate reader of Mills and Boone, um, I can tell you that all the Mills and Boone, I tend to read historical, all the historical Mills and Boone I've read, um, set at any other time of the year, they have to come up with a grand ball or, you know, a birthday party or an outing or a trip or something. And they have to create a reason why this is going on. You don't need that at Christmas. It's just like everybody gets together. It's a Christmas party and nobody questions it. It is just a natural setting for romance because everybody does come together. You don't need an excuse. You don't need to have a, a ball or a debutante or a coming out or anything. You've Everybody's already prepped and ready to go and have a but good time. You can still have a Yule ball, as we Harry Potter fans know. <laughs> you can indeed. So, I mean, I think romance particularly lends itself to that way. And like you say, sort of looking back on your life and stepping into a new chapter, it just slots in really nicely into the whole Christmas thing. Yeah, and you you also mentioned the kind of the the judgment, and you know we all know that Christmas is very much linked to that, and you know the Santa stories, you know he's making a list, checking it twice, and uh, I have definitely been naughty and not nice. Um, <laughs> Let's hope your parents aren't still listening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Shh, I've been very nice this year. Yes, very very nice. I definitely deserve that brand new washing machine because I'm an adult now and that's the exciting Christmas presents I get. Um, <laughs> but, 
But, you know, it, it, these are like a moral stories often, you know. So even, and even, yes, the, the romance ones, you know, they're often about, you know, if, if someone's managed to, you know, I'm thinking about Christmas Prince again. God, help me. I'm <laughs> such a nerd. All right. So, you know, she lies to get into the palace and, you know, but she ultimately has to, you know, come clean and save the day. And it's all about being honest and open and who you are, all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, the, the classic Christmas stories. So I think most of us will sort of think of a Christmas carol as one of the kind of ultimate Christmas stories. And it is a speculative one as well, which, you know, fits nicely for us. But there's definitely, you know, a moral message to that all the way through. Like it's kind of the very definition of beating someone over the head with a moral message. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Three times as well. Yes. <laughs> and I mean, so we've got basically don't be greedy. We've got like, what What are the other moral messages that we tend to see? Um, well, like I say, I think we cover them all with the idea of divine judgment and just becoming a better person. I think, I think Christmas is just a way for everybody to kind of look around themselves and take stock and compare themselves to others. Because again, you're in all these social situations. So whatever your flaw, whether you're greedy or whether you're selfish or whether um, I'm always writing ones about people who don't have enough time for the kids or who get sort of wrapped up in everything. The other point of Christmas, certainly in our modern day, is that you stop and you can't go to work and you can't do all the things that normally draggle your, you know, your time away. Um, and that can be Another very powerful way of finding yourself, if you take away the one thing that you re that you do all the time and put you in a social situation where you should be, but you generally aren't, like, you know, I say I always write about sort of parents, mothers, fathers, whatever, that don't spend a lot of time with their kids and then suddenly are forced on it. And it's, it's a whole new world for them. And they're like, well, I should be good at this because this is my main role, but actually I don't really do it. Um, so I think that's a, another message, sort of the message of family in general. And just, yeah, spending it with your loved ones, I suppose it's, that's the Christmas message generally. But also, yeah, but also spending it in a valued way. So not just, you know, spending, <laughs> dear, um, this is going to be me as a writer, not kind of just spending it going, oh, I'll just make the mince pies and then I just need to go and send this email. Or, yeah, mummy can come and read your bedtime story. I just have to finish this, this work call and things like that. <laughs> and I mean, I do it all the year round. And I think a lot of people feel pressure at this time of the year because in all the jobs I've certainly been in, coming up to Christmas, you have to do a backlog of stuff to get everything absolutely ready. So at Christmas, you can switch off and just go home. Um, but I guess there are some people who really can't do that. You know, I've seen emails from bosses that have been on Christmas day and i'm like shouldn't you be enjoying it I'm like oh yeah i've done that now i've you know it's two o'clock on christmas day I'm, I'm bored now i'm going back to work you know there are uh, people like that no <laughs> <laughs> but again you know that's a that's not necessarily greed you know it could be anything it could be pride in your job it could just be being hard-hearted it could be miserly it's all all sorts of things hmm interesting but let's okay let's let's talk about why we have Charlotte on the podcast because she's a wonderful yeah, aficionado of horror. <laughs> I am indeed. Well, actually, weirdly enough, the first ever horror books I read were um, Christmas horror. So I was brought up in a kind of very Pride and Prejudice um, sitcom kind of family where no, neither of my parents really liked horror at all. Um, my dad had you know, watched a bit of it or read a bit of it when he was in college, but he'd never really been something to be interested in. He was quite interested in fantasy, which is and science fiction, which is where I got that from. 
But I always, always loved Christmas because my birthday's around then and it, I always loved the lights and everything. And it was actually Halloween when we were in a bookshop um, with my father and he said, oh, pick a book that you want. And I saw one on Christmas Horror and I went, oh, what's that all about? And I was like, can I have this one? He went, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> he, he didn't really, you know, I think, what was it called? Chilling Christmas Tales, it was called. Um, it was, and it, I've got it in front of me. It's by Scholastic, um, who used to do the Point Horror stuff, you know? Um, when, well, maybe you don't know, but no. they were a big, uh, no. <laughs> Point Horror were like, you know, sort of PG-rated slasher movie books kind of things. They had all these weird and wonderful Camp Fear and The Pool and things like that. that you okay. used to read, which just, you know, Like Goosebumps? Cheap. Like Goosebumps, but I think a little bit older, or maybe uh, yeah. So I've, Goosebumps was after after my era. Oh, uh, uh, I read but, Goosebumps. Oh, hang on. Um, what was it? Uh, who's afraid of the Who's afraid of the dark? Was it there was that um, Australian TV show with all the kids around the campfire, um, and they used to start telling stories and things. Um, that was great. I think it was Australian. But anyway, we get sidetracked. Here. So, <laughs> Would we? Never. Well, no. It's because Lucy's not here to keep us in check. That's what it is. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I picked up this book, A Christmas Horror, and I remembered going, oh, my God, Christmas can be scary. And it was it was such a revelation for me that I'd never really seen this. And, yes, okay, I'd seen Christmas Carol, but like everybody's saying, I'd seen The Muppet Christmas Carol, which yeah. is very, very <laughs> different. I don't know. I mean, the, the Muppet Christmas Carol um, Ghost of Christmas Future is absolutely terrifying. Like bone chillingly terrifying that's true but in the book yeah. it's slightly different because yes okay it's still bone chillingly terrifying but who isn't afraid of the future and who isn't afraid of death that's something you can he you doesn't can have a face charlotte <laughs> but personally i think the really upsetting and disturbing bit in um the christmas carol is when um, right at the very end, when Scrooge has been dealing with the ghost of Christmas present, who's had this massive jolly stomach and laugh and huge robes, and he pulls the two robes back and and produces two emaciated child children that have been clinging underneath his robes and hidden away. And what they represent is poverty and, you know, sort of illness and things like that. The things that everyday, that, that people are actually suffering um, in everyday sort of life, but can't kind of tends to get swallowed up in Christmas. You will have this idea that everybody gets a Christmas, a Christmas present and a Christmas card. And it, uh, in the Muppet Christmas Carol, the closest they come to that is the little rabbit who on Christmas night, when everybody else is going home to um, their families, curls up under like a, a little newspaper and he's all on his own and shivering and alone. That's the closest they get. Um, and I, But I think, because one of the reasons that Charles Dickens wrote it, I believe, is to, to highlight to society just how greedy and how how much Christmas had lost the whole point of Christmas spirit. And the idea is that Scrooge, okay, he's he's an exaggeration, but he is supposed to reflect, you know, modern day, well, then modern day businessmen and things like that. And, you know, it's there is all this wonderful stuff at Christmas and all this family stuff. But if you look closer, there are emaciated children, the kids who don't have anything. And I think, you know, a lot of people tend to forget that as much now as they did back in, um, in Dickens' day. Yeah, I, I don't know. I... I'm terrible in that this is where I have to admit that I've never actually read A Christmas Carol. I've only seen, um, yeah, I've pretty much only seen them up at Christmas Carol. <laughs> <laughs> but, what, what, are you telling me that that isn't like how it happens? You know, is is Rizzo the rat not the narrator? I mean, I'm confused now. <laughs> oh no, no, Gonzo's the narrator. Come on. <laughs> oh, God, Gonzo, yes, but Rizzo's like 
uh, let's not get into the conversation in that I have a very strict, uh, my top three hottest Muppets, but that is a story for another day. Um, but Rizzo is on the list. Anyway. <laughs> you know I wouldn't know who the other two are now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, fine. This is just a brief interlude. Um, hottest Muppets, <laughs> in order. <laughs> uh, animal, obviously. Right. Yeah. Rizzo the rat and Sam Eagle. Sam Eagle does have the voice going for him. I'll give you that. But, and the eyebrows. I mean, that man <laughs> has some. I. It's just good. Good facial hair going on. He's just very sophisticated. He's, he's basically the George Clooney of the Muppets. I. Yeah. Surely the Sean Connery with eyebrows like that. Oh yeah, I guess. But he's yeah. there's just something about his like. He's got more. I suppose Sean Connery did have a bit, you know, he was suave back in the day when he was Bond. I'm just, I'm getting the Highlander kind of image in my head and I'm like, no, that's not doing it for me. Is it not really? <laughs> oh, okay. Well, you have the Muppets, I have Sean Connery and Highlander. There we go. <laughs> there are our, our, our dirty Christmas secrets for this year. <laughs> okay. I mean, so one thing I like about the dark stuff is that kind of, you know, the, the two sides of the same coin where you get, you know, your friends and your family and you have, you know, this wonderful food and you've got presents and so on. But then there's that underlying, that undercurrent of, you know, as you say, like the poverty or the whatever that we're not talking about, you know, and, and that kind of the the tension that's often there in families and whatever else is happening. And, you know, um, I'm talking to a friend about it. We were, we were thinking about um, Christmas in the Harry Potter books where it's always kind of a double-edged sword at Christmas time because they usually end up spending it together. There's usually like, you know, a nice dinner or something fun, but then it's also often when the massively dark revelation happens before they find out how that, you know, what the big obstacle is they're going to have to um, overcome before the end of the year. And it's kind of that turning point in the year for them, um, which I think definitely plays into like that, that darkness. But then, yeah, I, I like that there's also, as you were saying, like when you were, Hallow you liked Halloween, but then you came across like Christmas horror. But I think they're, they're quite similar in many ways in like the borders of reality are kind of very much thin, you know, much thinner than usual. You've got irrational, inexplicable things happening. And I think it's very easy to see this kind of Christmas tales becoming sinister and creepy. And I mean, you know, think, People just go, oh, well, you know, think about Santa Claus in another way. It's just this old man who creeps into people's locked homes at night. <laughs> yeah, um, totally. And I mean, we one of the ironies of parenthood is that you spend all the time telling your kids not to go away with strangers or to talk to them. And you go, yeah, that strange bloke over there that you only see briefly for five minutes once a year, go sit in his lap and tell him all about yourself. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> But I was I was kind of thinking about that and, you know, why particular horror and, and Christmas. Um, I mean, one thing that did occur to me is that you have all this um, magical mystery um, air around Midsummer because it is the longest day and you have fairies and you have all sorts of people disappearing and, and all that kind of mystery, uh, mystery yes. and magic. And then at the other end, you've got the longest night and the shortest day. And that just by itself is very magical anyway. You know, it's it's exactly the reverse of everything that you have at midsummer so i mean i think it's already got that going for it um 
I also think that um, in ha- Halloween, everywhere you look, there is something sinister. You can't get away from it. I mean, that was the whole point of Halloween originally, is that um, they believed that demons or the dead came back and you wore a mask so that if you bumped into one of them, they would think you were one of their own and they wouldn't hurt you. So that's where the tradition of masks came from. Um, and you kind of expect it. But the thing about winter and Christmas is that you look around expecting to see nice things and shiny things and tinsel and when you when you suddenly see the face looking in at the window or something terrible like that it's even more of a jolt than when you're already expecting it it's like the jump scare Mm. i suppose in in horror movies um and i mean it's one of the reasons why a i really like mr james and one of the reasons why i think mr james is so good at ghost stories because mr james really does excel at having kind of the the bill of the suspense and just dark things glimpsed in a corner and you never quite see all of it but you see enough of it um, and I think it's kind of the same in winter because in obviously in summer, masses of daylight and you can still create horror in summer, plenty of horror. I mean, I'm currently re-listening to Stephen King's It, you know, and that's not, yes, It, that's what I've been re-listening to so much Stephen King recently. <laughs> but, I mean, that's all kind of set in the summer and, you know, around about that kind of thing. And, and it doesn't rely on the darkness. It is just scary and frightening in general. Um, but I think when it comes to midwinter and the darkness, it's very different and i think if you think about what you do at nighttime in winter you close the curtains and you shut everything out and that has two elements you have the idea that there is the darkness just on the other side of the glass and there's not that much separating you and you also have the idea that if you shut the do- shut the doors or shut the windows you might actually be shutting it in with you um which mm. of course is a sort of you don't necessarily get that in the summer because you've got windows open and you know breezes and everything is moving and that in itself can be frightening because there's nowhere to hide because everywhere is open whereas i think in winter it's a different kind of fear it's the fear of being enclosed of something being really close either just outside the window or you know caught in here with you i never really thought about it like that I mean, but of course, you know, I come from the wrong side of the planet, I guess. Cause <laughs> this is true. In my Christmas, it is summer and the windows are open. <laughs> well, that might be why it's such a, a British thing. I mean, I can't think of a lot of um, Australian Christmas horror stories, I must admit. That might just be because I've not read them uh, and there are plenty out there. But I mean, I was looking through my... Um, my huge pile of Christmas books on my Kindle and they're all centered around you know sort of Europe and you know, particularly in Britain because I do I do like my British writers um yeah so I think it's a it can be a very sort of you know geographical thing depending on on how you do it and certainly with the long the long dark nights that can that can really help see the thing is though in Australia, we have these terrible, terrible, like, Christmas cartoon type things that often end up on, like, cheesy Christmas cards you can buy at the post office. And they're basically um, little drawings of Santa with a really bad, um, oh, like, oh, I don't know the co- politically correct term for it, but like, uh, uh, oh, a vest, that's what you call it. See, we, <laughs> we would call it a wife beater, so, you know. Um <laughs> terrible um so yeah the like that kind of tan line with like red everywhere because he's been on the beach and then it's got like all the reindeer sunbathing on the beach next to him and he's got like um you know a a cocktail and whatever and i mean that is horrific where you just see like drawings of a fat santa with a terrible lobster suntan thing going on that's that's plenty horror for me that's yeah (laughs) (laughs) well it's interesting because i don't know 
where the Christmas traditions come from. Because I, again, being such a fan of Christmas and horror in general, I've read up on quite a lot of it. And there are a lot of European um, original customs that kind of got merged into mm. um, Father Christmas. I mean, there isn't really a standard one. Even today, you know, you have Sinterklaas and you have Santa Claus and you have Father Christmas and you have all these people, St. Nicholas, who are all very different people with very different sources. Um, and they're all kind of amalgamated. And each year, something slightly different happens. I mean, the most recent change has obviously been the Elf on the Shelf, which I'm afraid we've had to indulge in this year. Um, but, uh, you know, there's always a, a new Christmas custom and it kind of gets incorporated in some places and not others. I mean, in some places they leave out shoes. Um, in some places they leave out stockings. Mm. Um, there's all these sort of different things. I mean, even just looking at the story of St. Nicholas himself, um, and you know, the whole idea about the um, three young girls and how um, to save these girls from prostitution and slavery. Um, he threw in money every now and again just before they were due to be sold off so that they could have dowries and be married. And the one variation has it where the windows are shut on the last night, so he throws it down the chimney um, or he throws it in and it lands in a shoe. And, you know, by these small regional variations, you do tend to get very sort of different traditions, um, popping up in, in different countries. And I don't know where the Australian ones come from, because I know that s certainly a lot of the American ones kind of moved across from, from England and Europe with the settlers and have then taken on their own kind of um, influences over there and then come back across come back across the sea and are now sort of amalgamated with everything else. It, it's just fascinating to try and see all the different ideas. And there was one bit where they thought that um, Father Christmas had shamanic uh, shamanic kind of background um, and eating magic mushrooms that he could fly down chimneys and things like that. It was It's absolutely fascinating, but I'm afraid I don't know where the Australian <laughs> one comes from. Oh, well, we just follow the Europeans, but then we just say that he comes back here when he's done for his holiday. <laughs> We're like, yeah, obviously he comes in holidays and parties in uh, Australia post-Christmas, you know, it's just no-brainer, really. <laughs> well, I was thinking about this when you sent out the questions and thinking about... Christmas as the Christian festival mm. and then kind of midwinter and Yule as a different older pagan festival um, and I mean Father Christmas was originally um, a incarnation of Woden or Odin or whoever you want to call him um, and he was kind of you know quite grumpy <laughs> and could be could be quite vicious and could hunt you down if you were bad that kind of thing but then you have sort of the Christian side of it and I was thinking that with sort of adding in Christian with the miracle of the virgin birth and the miracle of the um, angels and things like that, you're automatically throwing magic in there. And I mean, no disrespect to Christians at all, but you know, if you take miracles as a form of magic and um, divine power, then you're automatically setting up and going, Hey, this, this season here yes. is automatically associated with magic. You don't have to kind of then, you know, find the magic in say midsummer or, or something like that. You don't have to kind of invent it for, the middle of April, you know, what would be haunting the moors on a, on a nice sunny May evening, that kind of thing. You already have established a whole season that is just devoted to magic. So mm -hmm. it's it's very easy for writers to take that magic and twist it. Like I was saying earlier about um, all the different versions of, of Santa Claus, if you pick one, as many filmmakers have done, you can turn it into something truly terrifying mm. or you could turn it into something really romantic or you could turn it into something beautifully sci-fi. It's almost there and ready and a uh, a set piece waiting for you to to play with it really and it's already saying hey magic is allowed pretty much anything is allowed people can change people can come back from the dead they can have ghosts you can have anything because mm. all of this is already part of the tradition so fill your boots lads but i also quite like you know you're, you're saying how magic is part of the season already but 
if we're looking at it from you know the basis of the, the Christian tradition, when the magic that's around in that season is something you know that's very like it's a good magic and and good things are happening with this magic, it feels like the only place to go is to show that there is the opposite side to find balance because we do this in stories and just in life in general, you know, there's the good and there's the bad. And so if all this is good, all this good is happening somewhere, where's the darkness? Where is the bad stuff happening? And I feel like it's, it kind of makes sense that when you have all that kind of fun, fairiness, the the lighthearted magic, that you necessarily kind of have to have that flip side. Absolutely. And I mean, we have going back to what I was talking about earlier, right? It being winter as well, just to throw that into the mix, where all the normal rules are off. And when I was thinking about this, uh, the perfect example I thought of was um, Terry Pratchett, the fifth elephant, um, where Captain Primes is running through the snow, being chased by the werewolves, and it's it's starting to snow, and he's um, very very cold, and he needs to curl up somewhere, and he finds somewhere suitable, and he curls up underneath um, a bough of a tree, which has a load of snow on the top, makes a nice warm little bit, and he's just settled himself down. And he turns around and there's like a pack of wolves, real wolves there. And they kind of look at him and he looks at them and they settle down and go to sleep. And Vimes is like, I'm so absolutely exhausted. I'm going to have to sleep anyway. And then when he wakes up in the morning, the wolves have gone. And it was just this wonderful idea that in the middle of the snow, everybody understands that all the rules are off. We're all hiding because we all need to survive. And I'm not going to get you and you're not going to get me. We're just going to call a little bit of a truce. Um, and then, you know, when the snow's gone and it's daylight and everything's even and we're back on an even keel, then, you know, that's it. You're going to be your mind kind of thing. <laughs> but I was well, also think, thinking about actually, that. That's um, actually, sorry, before you go on, that just makes me think of World War Two or World War One. Yes. Yeah, World War Two, where they had the, the Christmas Day sort of break and then everyone kind of got up and started playing football, you know, the, the Germans and the, the British and so on and... Can't trust those girls to get their facts right. Hi, I'm Lucy, your editor, and the Christmas truce occurred during World War One in 1914. Absolutely. Um, I understand that that only happened at the beginning of World War Two because the... Um, World War One, Charlotte. World War One. Obviously, your natural instinct as a human, or most natural instincts of humans, is not to kill people that you like and know and have maybe shared some mulled wine with. So obviously, to try and keep the antagonism going, the um, commanders on both sides would not let that happen and would not let football matches happen after a while because it was like, no, we really do hate them. That's why we're fighting them. Stop giving them mince pies <laughs> and things like that. <laughs> but yeah, again, it's this this whole idea. And I mean, a part of it, I don't know whether it stems from the Christian myth or whether it kind of the Christian myth has very cleverly incorporated it because I think that's one of the reasons why you know religions we have today are quite so good because they do tend to incorporate local elements mm. um, is that you've got the idea of the is it the lion lying down with the lamb and the wolf lying down with the sheep yeah and I was reading my daughter a book this evening called can it be true by Susan Hill who despite writing some really scary stuff also writes some really <laughs> lovely stuff um, and she ha- She's the story is basically everybody that's so the wolf is is chasing the sheep, the fox is getting the hens, um, the ferret, the stoat, and the weasel are after the rabbit, and so on. And then Christmas Eve comes and twelve o'clock strikes, and they all go, Wow, something amazing has happened. And they all kind of go together to go see this amazing thing. And at the end, you've got the picture of all of them together just looking at the little baby Jesus, you know, and the the owl has given the the vole a lift on its back because that's how it, it gets there. When it comes to um or like the Saint Nick, Santa, 
you obviously know far more about the variations than I do. Um, but certainly the one that I grew up with is kind of, you know, this this nice laughing figure who, you know, gives out toys to kids. But when, you know, you get into it, it, it still is about a guy who is kind of meant to check whether you're being good. And if you aren't good, you're meant to have consequences. The, certainly the stories that I know, it's mostly, you know, oh, you get a lump of coal. So you don't, basically, you just don't get presents. Um, but I like the darker elements where you actually get punished. Um, I don't know what that says about me, but <laughs> I like that. So, I mean, I don't know much about um, Krampus, is it? Yes. Yes. Um, maybe you could enlighten me. So, yes, Krampus and Black Peter are two kind of versions of the same thing. So what a lot of people seem to do is that rather than having one person in the form of St. Nicholas or Santa Claus for Christmas who dishes out both presents and um punishment you have your father christmas figure who dishes out the presents and you have your krampus or your black peter figure who dishes out the punishment um and black peter is very controversial because he was supposed to just be a normal helper like who went down the chimney uh looked at the kids reported back to father christmas and then either um father christmas gave them presents or if they'd been bad black peter had a, a wealth of punishments from uh putting them in a bag and beating them um putting them in a bag and taking them away, whipping them, all sorts of things. Um, <laughs> there's probably more punishment options than there were present options, to be honest. <laughs> but um, then, unfortunately, when people try to represent Black Peter, they, they would get white people and cover them with black face makeup. Yeah. Yeah. And their mm. argument was, well, he can't be black because he's black from getting soot all over him. So clearly he's got a black face. And it's just like, no. It's so just, just, Yeah. And then no. Krampus is, is a step beyond that. So Krampus isn't even human. He's kind of a, a demony figure. I think he's sort of got goat legs and goat horns and things like that. Um, but he, he has the same idea that he punishes the, the bad kids um, and Santa um, rewards the good kids. Although from the modern, more modern fiction I've seen, he seems to be more of a law unto himself, whereas, you know, Black Peter is never really seen without St. Nick next to him or Sinterklaas. Um, and I just... I find this really interesting because <laughs> you've got all these stories about people like Scrooge who, you know, have good things and bad things and they have to overcome the good things and whatever. And then your main myth mythological creatures or figures are very, very dual aspect. You've got the very good Father Christmas and then the very bad Peter or Krampus or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it also seems to be quite reflected within religion where you've got God who gives out all the good stuff and then his counterpart, you know, or lesser counterpart rather, the devil who dishes out all the bad stuff. And I just wonder at this, this idea that in all of our Christmas stories, the humans are all flawed and a bit of both, but your mythological creatures have to be one or the other i think that's a, a very interesting and maybe feeds back into what we were saying about you've got the jollity of the christmas tree and the sparkly tinsel and all the lights and then the darkness outside it's very very much two aspects coming into conflict i'm also getting dark crystal vibes here as well <laughs> only you could work the dark crystal into christmas <laughs> come on oh, t-shirt megan puts the dark crystal into christmas <laughs> But, I mean, you do have some really good just Christmas monsters that are just out there for the hell of it. Um, I mean, I wrote for Ginger Nuts Horror last year. I wrote something called 13 for Christmas. and I had a great time going through and researching all the Christmas monsters. And um, there's the Yule Boys, which could have, you know, 13 of their own stories, which is basically a load of boys, a bit like 
the seven dwarves have all got different little characteristics um and they go around and create mischief and mayhem some of it nice some of it cruel you know it's it's all a bit iffy but my favorite one is the yule cat have you ever heard of the yule cat no proper monster although again has this idea of you know good versus bad it the idea was that if you didn't have a new piece of clothing for christmas the yule cat would eat you um because it was supposed to be someone had to love you enough to give you a new item of clothing and if that happened you would be okay and if it didn't happen then you got eaten (laughs) okay i mean is is this a a domestic size cat well it's (laughs) different kind of things i mean in my story i did have it as a domestic sized cat that grew a bit bigger but uh, yeah kind of you know i'm i'm sure in some version it just kills you by i don't know clawing you to pieces who knows but um but yeah generally they you know they can be seen eating them and again it's just it's captured the imagination of, of writers everywhere because it, it's really cool um but they you know even with those those main monsters there's still this element of they'll only prey on the unjust and the people who aren't valued as part of their community so we're always coming back to this idea of being a valid member of society um and being able to you know show that in how you treat others and how others treat you yeah which i guess also brings us back around to your favorite uh what was it uh it's a wonderful life so there you are <laughs> connections between it's a wonderful life and yule cats <laughs> but also yeah i mean i one of my favorite christmas I, I, it's not really scary it's comedy uh which again also that like christmas horror comedy is also a thing but anyway that's sidetrack but um i love robot santa from futurama oh he's awesome like amazing <laughs> what's it you better watch out you better not cry he's gunning you down yeah. <laughs> things like that oh it's awesome not quite as cool as the robot devil but uh, robot santa was was very cool Oh, I love Robot Santa. <laughs> well, I mean, you do get some amazing, amazing sort of stuff re- uh, recently. Um, I know we were talking about Ghost Stories and M.R. James briefly, but he's having a huge, big revival. Um, I think possibly because the new darling of the BBC is Mark Gatiss, of course, from, well, mm-hmm. pick pick your um, your award-winning show that you would like to, to reference Mark Gatiss to. And he really loves M.R. James. He did a fabulous, fabulous um documentary on him a little while back a couple of years ago and i'm hoping it'll be a christmas tradition where they repeat it regularly but they're also looking at all the old mr james stuff made from the 1970s which is still as flipping petrifying as it is now as it was back then um and i know that he i was talking to our friend fenton who has done some reviews for pop person things isn't he yes yep um <laughs> and fenton and i love all things mr james and he was uh, we were chatting about it and it was it was kind of like a tradition for um, Monty because he was Montague uh, Road James. Uh, it was a tradition for Monty to make up a story at Christmas. Some of them were Christmas themed, some of them not. Um, but he would always tell them to um, uh, to kids or to his students or to the other professors, and he kind of got you know quite famous for it. And my favourite one that he told, I'm not sure if it was at Christmas, but it was um, the Wailing Well. <laughs> he he was a big fan of the Scouts, and he uh, he told this story to members of the Scouts. He made up a horror story about the Wailing Well, which was two fields away from where they were currently camping. Um, and in his story, um, at least one uh, scout is uh, meets a sticky end. So it was like, you mean, horrible person. Um, but I mean, he's yeah. So he always used to make them up for Christmas and things like that. And of course, you have then Dickens, because everybody knows the Christmas Carol, but nobody knows. The story, well, very few people know the story of um, the goblins, the story of the goblins who stole a sexton. 
which is something very similar. A sexton who is just mean and miserable and, and mean-spirited is wandering along and enjoying all the misery he see, sees around, and he gets got by a load of goblins who can't believe just how terrible he is. And then when, 10 years later, having been um, subjected to the goblins by watching vision after vision of all these people who are much more worse off than him but are much happier, he comes back quite contented. And it, it's a really lovely little story. And in a weird way, I kind of like it more than A Christmas Carol, although it could just be that Christmas Carol is done to death. But it's just, it's so over the top. Um, yeah, but it's not it's, like, that's not a really um, catchy title. <laughs> I don't know, The Story of the Goblins Who Stole a Sexton. No, I like that. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a long title. I like it. But I mean, you get some really good stuff these days. We're coming back to where we, we were originally. They're doing a load more MR James stuff, and Mark Gatiss is doing uh, what's it called? The um, the one with Simon Callow. There's one coming up. I did make a note of it, but I have momentarily lost it. But he's doing um, a BBC Four drama with Simon Callow, set in a radio studio, and that looks absolutely fantastic. Uh, and I have to give a shout out to the Family Guy episode as being perhaps the most Christmas Carol story ever. Are you a fan of Family Guy? Uh, some of it. It's a bit hit and miss. <laughs> it is. But there's there's one really good one. Um, and it's a bit like if you watch Family Guy, you'll know that um, Brian and Stu, we often go off on little road trips. And this one mm-hmm. is a road trip to the North Pole. And basically it starts off with a, a lovely musical number where everybody's singing about what they would like for Christmas. And um, Stewie insists he must go and visit Father Christmas and tell him exactly what he wants. And Brian tries to convince him by taking him to a fake North Pole. And then Stewie's like, this is wrong. I'm going to hitch a lift to Canada and so on. And eventually they get to the North Pole and they find that Santa is dead on his feet. Um, the elves are all overworked and sick and all the reindeer have turned feral because they're under such pressure at Christmas that they just can't keep up. So the end of the story is that they break into a, a TV studio and they say, look, you can't all have the stuff that you want for Christmas. Don't be so ridiculous. Pick something small. And at the end, everybody goes, oh, actually, yeah, I should do. I really should pick something small. I shouldn't want this amazing, huge list of stuff. I should just be happy with this nice, small gift. And to me, that was kind of, without actually rehashing the whole, you know, Christmas carol thing that's been done over and over again, I thought that was a really wonderful satirical piece that focused on a a modern problem, Mm. which, as much as being poverty is obviously still a problem these days, um, and we're always, you know, in our family, we always try and um, save money to give to those... um, cash for kids and things like that to make sure the kids get presents for Christmas because, you know, it's just so so heartbreaking to think there aren't some. But the other side of that is that we all want too much. And I always end up saying to people when they ask what my daughter wants, I'm like, we have so much stuff already. We really don't need any more. But people want to buy something and, you know, the kids want to have something they expect it at Christmas. So it kind of, you know, it is a modern day story with a really, really dark um, tone to it with these mm. feral reindeer who who eat the elves who fall sick because they're just so overworked and it's a really wonderful way of of you know dealing with the, the modern christmas day problems yeah dark but i suppose that's Very what dark. we are talking about <laughs> but it's a dark musical and they show all the problems to a very catchy musical number that is going through my head even now. <laughs> so, <laughs> typical family mixes, guy, yeah. Well, yeah, it still mixes the you know the jollity of Christmas with this really dark and depressing overtone. But you and I uh, were discussing before we came on air. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know what I mean. Um, the, how like you feel like there's not as much darkness in in the Christmas stories that we get told nowadays, especially to children? Well, I think there's not enough darkness in children's things anyway. I mean, well, I remember, yeah, no, I would agree. 
I remember saying to you um, when you were asking about examples of stuff that we watch for Christmas, um, I have a crippling fear of wolves and I can trace it back to several things. One of them being um, an album that my father played me, which was just basically wolves howling in the Arctic. Another one was... <laughs> <Okay>. um, <laughs> as you do. Another, as you do. Another one was um, The NeverEnding Story, which has the, the beast that chase um, the hero mm -hmm. all the way through. Oh, God, I, I can't watch that these days. But the other one that really got me was The Box of Delights, which a lot of people go, oh, it's a lovely, charming Christmas story. And I go, it's absolutely terrifying. And all the way through that, you've got Kay, the protagonist, trying to outwit and outrun wolves and all sorts of things, trying to eat him or catch him or kill him. It's absolutely terrifying. You know, and people turn up at the front door and you have to escape through the back door and things like that. And I was looking at it and going, you'd never get that remade for Christmas now for kids. It's just, it's too dark and too weird and psychedelic. But I know you mentioned in when you emailed around about um, the Gruffalo and the Gruffalo's child sort of coming back and bringing, bringing this back. Um, so I've, I've read, I can probably quote the Gruffalo's child if you ever need someone to record it for you, <laughs> but I can quote it. And it, it's a lovely little tale. Um, and if you watch the BBC adaptations, they are very dark because the whole point of the Gruffalo is, for those of you who don't have kids, it centres on a little mouse walking through a wood and he meets three things that want to eat him, um, a fox, an owl and, oh, there you go, a snake. Um, and he, every time he meets one, he goes, oh, no, no, I can't stop and, you know, have tea with you. I'm meeting a Gruffalo and describes how terrifying this Gruffalo is. And they're all like, oh, that sounds terrible and runs away. And the little mouse keeps going and um, trying to find a nut. And he comes across a Gruffalo that actually exists. And he's like, oh, my God, you exist. And uh, the Gruffalo says, oh, I shall eat you. And uh, he's like, oh, no, no, you don't want to eat me. I'm the scariest thing in the wood. Watch, we'll walk back through the wood and you'll see how terrified everything is of me. So, of course, he comes across <laughs> all the same animals again, who then turn around and go, bloody hell, it really does exist. It's a Gruffalo. I'm run away. And at the end, the Gruffalo is kind of like, oh, you are quite scary. And the mouse goes, yes and I eat gruffalos, and the gruffalo legs it. <laughs> and <laughs> in its essence, although it's really charming and sweet, and it's about, you know, the underdog um, bringing it home, it is a story about trying not to be eaten. And if you watch mm. the BBC adaptations, they have in the background lots of animals being eaten. Like, you just see a fish. The one that gets me is a fish where there's a heron, and it just plunges its head in, and it lifts it up, and you just got this fish that kind of meets the mouse's gaze as it gets lifted up and off screen and it's just that kind of like oh and it's like oh my god that's that small plasticine fish that they've done is just so unbelievably soul destroying it's it's just horrible and again it's coming back to the you know obviously the dark side of, of walking through a wood and the gruffalo was set in summer whereas obviously the, the gruffalo child is set in winter but the irrelevant of the settings they're always at Christmas time, they come out at Christmas and they are fantastic ones and they keep the idea of the story and the sort of the oral tradition because you always have the little characters saying their own lines, but you have an overall narrator and the framing narrative is a mother squirrel telling her two little children stories to kind of keep away the, the nightmares and things like that. See, it's all in there. You've got death, you've got kind of clubbing together, you've got the, the story of keeping inside and keeping warm and learning morals. It's just everything. They, I think they're great. And I think they are the, the new Christmas story to be told every year. <laughs> well, apologies for that. I've, I've got um, Marty is my cat is trying to get my attention. I think she doesn't like this talk of scary stories. Oh, 
Well, you can tell her that gruffalos don't eat cats, so you should be okay. Well, there you go, Marty. Yeah, you're safe. You're safe. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get a guest spot on the show. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that I wanted to ask you, Megan, because you're a very big fan of sort of romance, you were saying, with all the romance films you've listed. And one of the things that I tend to find is when you look through the Christmas schedules for all the family stuff, yeah, okay, you've got the Gruffalo and whatever, but that's half an hour and the rest of it is all bright and fun and full of tinsel and happiness and goodwill. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of feel like that's replaced the darkness of Christmas and it's not, you know, in as in there as much. Um, but in a weird way, the TV also kind of brings us all together to tell us stories. It almost seems the perfect a perfect medium through which to relive Christmas stories. So, I mean, what do you watch at Christmas? Do you, if you, as someone who enjoys romance, do you find there's enough Christmas, dark Christmassy stuff in it? Because I certainly have to go and search it out when I look through Christmas TV. And the, the Mark Gatiss stuff, again, will probably be on at a decent time, probably at nine o'clock, but it's on BBC Four. It's not kind of like primetime BBC One stuff. So, you know, it kind of seems to be pushed to the back of the TV schedules, never mind books. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that it certainly isn't the mainstream of it so much anymore and I think you know when you know like I said I've not read a Christmas Carol the Christmas Carol version that I know is a Muppet's Christmas Carol so (laughs) which is a very good version and still very dark it's fantastic and like great songs and you know as I've already mentioned like some real hotties um It is dark. I mean, I find the the ghost of Christmas past really creepy. She's a weird doll. It's it's terrifying. I um, but that's just me. Uh, yeah, I tend to find the lighter stories. I don't know if you take, say, one of my all time favorites. Um, it's a Wonderful Life. That is ultimately a very feel good, kind of soppy, ridiculous Christmas story, but. It's also very, very, very dark because the story starts with a man who's basically, he's, he's about to kill himself. Mm. And he instead, uh, before he can do so, he gets uh, his angel, <laughs> comes his guardian angel comes down and basically says, oh, you want to kill yourself, do you? You think the world would be better off without you? Let's show you what the world would be like without George Bailey. And that's how the story kicks off. So while yes, ultimately, you know, and it's it, Jimmy Stewart ends up running around basically doing the, well, I, I think he probably in his performance in that film must have been the inspiration for Tom Cruise jumping on the sofa and that kind of, you know, it's so over the top. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, but it's also, you know, it's very sweet and it's, you know, it's, it's so saccharine. It's just ridiculous, but it's still very, very dark. Yeah, I mean, I, that's the kind of thing I rewatch at Christmas, so I'm probably still getting the darker ones because I'm watching the older ones. So even like um, Miracle on 34th Street, that's again got magic and speculative element, and uh, although it's not quite as sort of nailed down, there's a bit of mystery in there. You know, is it magic? Is it not? Ooh, do we know? Oh, we never will. Um, but there's there's certainly a, a darkness there too, obviously, you know, with the kind of putting Santa on trial. It's all a bit terrifying for children. Um, the newer stuff, I, I don't know if it's what I tend to watch, 
<laughs> which is just <laughs> terrible, terrible nonsense. But well, that's the thing. I mean, you find yourself turning away from horror stuff because I'm the opposite. I, I go looking for it. And apart from the horror channel, which oh, is just filled with wonderful, terrible horror, <laughs> um, you know, I really struggle to find it, but except for the MR James stuff, which is starting to come back. And even then, you know, it's very kind of, it very much focuses around ghosts. And I suppose that's because coming back again to what we were saying about this idea of looking forward and looking backwards, mm. ghosts are always part of our past um, and looking back through the year we've had and can potentially, you know, be our future depending on, on how we act. So, you know, you tend to, with Krampus aside, you tend to sort of have more ghosts at Christmas. And I think that reflects that it's more of a, a human and a social um, issue around and horrors around Christmas than it is at, say, other times of the year when you might get something a bit more terrifying. Yeah, I I think it's it's probably what I look for. I look for the things that are just going to make me feel like, oh, there's hope in the world. Uh, <laughs> but then I also quite, I do at Christmas tend to like the kind of creepy ghost stories or thrillers and things set with like, you know, snow and that kind of thing. So I'm trying to remember what it's called. Is it I Am Not a Serial Killer? Is that? Is it a book? Is it a TV show? It's a book that was also made into a film. Oh, um, but I watched that last Christmas when I was on my own. And I was oh, I was so lame last Christmas. I was by myself. I ate 24 pigs in blankets. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Just, but they're tiny. That I know, count. but that was my Christmas lunch. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I then did some ironing while watching um, this uh, horror film with Christopher Lloyd in it as like a terrifying demon creature thing. Um, but that's all set, you know, in, in the US, in one of the, the northern states, you know, where there's just snow everywhere and it's very creepy. Because, and that's something we didn't really touch upon, which I don't, maybe I notice more because I'm still like a three-year-old child when it comes to snow. Um, but it's that when you wake up in the morning and it has snowed overnight... And I don't even need to look outside the window to know that it snowed because of the eerie silence. Yes. I mean, that was something I was going to come around to is that obviously snow features very heavily. Um, I believe from my research, it's very much a, uh, a Dickensian kind of Victorian thing. And they seem to really fixate on this, this idea of snow at Christmas and it just seems to keep going. Um, I believe the Victorians had their own mini ice age, so that probably, <laughs> probably explains it. But, I mean, snow is also, it has two elements to it. It has the element of kind of turning a world, you know, upside down. So things aren't recognisable in the snow. Mm. You look out your garden window, you can see the, the rose bushes, you can see, you know, the bit in the ground that your kid accidentally dug up because she thought she was digging for gold or something like that. And you can see your car, you can see your bins, and then it snows. And something, suddenly everything is just white lump and it's very disorientating unless you know it very, you know, the landscape very well. And even then, it's very difficult to identify things. And you kind of have this whole dislocation feeling. But you also have it outside because unless you're very unlucky, you tend not to have snow inside. So again, it's that very, very strong idea we're coming back to of um, being beyond the house and being something completely opposite on the outside. So you've got all the bright colours and lights and of your home inside and then outside it is just white and there's no colour, there's no definition, everything looks the same, everything has been levelled and it is outside your window and you can close your curtains on it and you can forget about it but it's still there and it's still pressing close and it's just as scary or it can be just as scary as you know the face pressing in at the window. So I think 
snow has also been incorporated into our consciousness. And there have been some fantastic books, um, horror books about snow. I mean, the best one that I saw on my Kindle as I was looking through was White by Tim Levin, which is very, very good. Um, Not Christmassy, but definitely counts as snow. And one that I read every winter after Christmas has been and gone. And it's definitely wintry is um, The Terror by Dan Simmons, because he just completely encompasses this whole idea of just being everything completely snowbound and trying to maintain your little human habitat against this absolutely devastating natural effect. And I just think snow is is a fantastic use for horror authors if you can um, if you can do it in a new way, if you you know, because I mean, it's been done quite a few times, but it, it is it's something that is quite terrifying as well as being quite beautiful yeah i just from living in it i i see that like i remember walking home just after work when you know it was very very snowy and because obviously even when i finished quite early it's dark at that time of year so i was walking back there was just seemed to be no one else around and it was silent, but for the like the crunching of my boots and just something about that situation just started to fill me with dread. And I was like, what is going to happen? I feel like something could happen now. <gasps> I've got to get home. This is terrifying, which is a ridiculous, completely illogical response to it. But it's it's that kind of sharpness matched with the silence. And it was it's very odd. And I think, yeah, it's it's definitely ripe for horror stories. Absolutely. And it's back to the duality aspect again. You've got everything is white, even at nighttime when it should be completely black and you shouldn't be able to see anything out your window. It's bright. Yeah, the the snow reflects something. And, you know, quite often when I've woken up or sort of been going to bed and there's been snow, it's so bright in the room Mm -hmm. because all the the lights come off. And also the only way to see anything in that brightness, the only stuff you can see is dark stuff. Um, You know, you can't see the odd bits of colours or whatever, it is just literally white and black and everything else seems to to just sort of fade into insignificance because if you've got something very fast moving across a white landscape, you can't necessarily take out the details because it's like staring into a bright light mm. with all the whiteness and, you know, your random scary monster can quite easily use that as cover. So, I mean, again, perfect setting. Back to the idea of duality, fantastic um, writer, <laughs> writer's use of uh, snow. Cool. Well, just before we finish, Megan, I just Mm -hmm. wanted to ask, I mean, you're not a big fan of horror, but is there any film or book or TV series or something that you like to watch at Christmas that really sort of evokes the dark side of it all and manages to have the contrast of the happy, jolly Christmas and the, the darker side of it? Is there anything in particular that you would recommend? So for me, I think I touched on this earlier. I love like the kind of the Christmas horror, but when it kind of goes into a bit of comedy. Um, and so for me, I really, really love Scrooged. Again, it's a Christmas carol, but it's so good. Um, <laughs> in a really 80s way. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> also, I would say Gremlins because it's kind of scary, but it's also, it's like so funny. <laughs> it is. It is a brilliant, brilliant Christmas film. It is it's as much a Christmas film as Die Hard is a Christmas film. It's just. I, I think it's one. more Christmassy than Die Hard. Oh. <gasps> Oh, I, I mean, I mean, not not in terms of like Die Hard is incredibly important for me, and Christmas is not Christmas without Die Hard. But I feel like there's there's more Christmas within Gremlins than there is within Die Hard. That's true. That I suppose there is a bit more Christmas lights, but I don't know. Now I have a gun, <laughs> motherfucker. Ho ho ho! Is usually <laughs> is usually quite a good one. 
I think if I had to recommend anything, I would definitely go back to the ones that started me all off, which were the Scholastic books from um, Haunting Christmas Tales, Chilling Christmas Tales and Mysterious Christmas Tales. They are designed for kids, but Christmas is all about kids anyway. And I just it takes me right back to being a kid at Christmas and also adds in some wonderful little chills. And it's a very good they've got a very good collection of authors. Um, I mean, they've got Joan Aiken and then Robert Swindles who, and Gary Kilworth, who are all excellent. Susan Price as well. And they have a good variety of stories, some that are kind of sweet, some that are very scary, some that have good outcomes, some that have bad outcomes. And they're, they're just brilliant. So if you've got young kids or if you want to go back to your childhood and be scared, I would highly recommend those. Well, there you have it. We've got scary Christmas stories and uh, plenty of, of saccharine sweet ones as well. And Charlotte, you, you need to watch It's a Wonderful Life. I just, it's just you need to do this. <laughs> I think what I need to do is sit down and watch the Muppet Christmas Carol and decide who the three hottest are, to be honest. <laughs> I'm telling you, Animal Reserve and Sam Eagle. I'm going to watch it and think about it. I shall give it due consideration. Yes, well, and on that note, uh, why don't uh, – I was going to say, listeners, please do tell us who your fa- um, hottest uh, Muppets are, but also <laughs> which uh, horror Christmas stories you love to watch or read or tell over the fire on Christmas Eve. Um, but yes, also the Muppet thing. Definitely the Muppet thing. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> it's a new Christmas tradition. All right, and thank you for listening, and catch us in the new year. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. And it's Merry Christmas from Lucy too. See you all in the new year.